Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. UCC. You see me, so let's go ahead and open up to Leviticus. Yay! Said someone somewhere. It was my attempt to cover chapter 6 and 7 today, but we don't have usually 45 minute long sermons, and that would probably take an hour for me to do. Um, they go well together, but just time doesn't afford it, and I have a, a five year old with curly black hair that he can't tolerate that either. So we're going to just be covering from chapter 6, verse 8, and go all the way through. I want to just give a, a brief outline of this book once more so we can see of its beautiful structure. This is a book of law. This is in the center of the Pentateuch, or the Septuagint, the, I said that wrong, Torah. Five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is called the law, the Torah. Leviticus is in the very middle. This means this is at the heart of God's law. And we find a chiastic structure, I'll explain that in a minute, of this book, where you'll have bookends that parallel, that focus on a main subject or topic. So what we find in Leviticus 1 through 7 are the sacrifices. And we've covered those in the first five chapters. And we're going to be reviewing them again in chapters 6 and 7, but verses 1 through 7 is sacrifices, and chapters 23 through 27 are sacrifices. Uh, 8 and 10 deals with the priests, and then 21 and 22 deals with the priests again. 11 through 15 deals with purification laws. Those will be really fun. I'm thinking, how can I read this in front of children, let alone teach through it? And then we're going to be seeing in verse 17 and 20 a passage, purification really expressed through love of neighbor and behavior. And at the central of this book is the Day of Atonement. This is when the high priest makes a very important offering before Yahweh in the Holy of Holies. So we have seen in the first five chapters the main common offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the purification or, or sin offering, and the reparations or, or the guilt offering. And these can be really confusing. One, because we're in the New Testament and we don't bring our, our animals, our livestock to church. But also this is confusing because depending on your translation, you have different names for these offerings. And that's okay. We're going at it very slowly. And the reason why I want us to be going through Leviticus is, well, there's a lot of reasons. But first and foremost, I don't want us to read this book in isolation and then create some subcategory of Christian where we don't even understand what we're reading, but then we apply it wrong. And then we think we're this holy category of Christian and we divorce ourselves from others. Uh, Another reason that really compels me is I think about some of the young students. I think of like Ella or Ava or Naphtali, and I want them to open up God's Bible and find that no word has been wasted. 
and that there's beauty in it. And though it might not make sense to them, and they might not know how this affects them when they're in the middle of temptation or trial, it's still good. And it's the Lord's. And it's beneficial for our soul. Let's go ahead and read our first section today, starting in verse 8. And it will be a little bit choppy, just so we cover it in its entirety. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest is to put on his linen robe, and he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar, and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood uh, on it every morning. And he shall lay out the burnt offering on it, and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offering on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. There is this assumption sometimes that ministers know what to do under every circumstance. And I do not know... I do not know what to do in every circumstance. And where this comes out most is when there are formal events. When there are special things where you have to stand here and you wait for a candle to go on or go out. Or after the lady sings, then you go up and say something. Or I get nervous. I don't know how to give the cue. I'm afraid to interpret the cue. And ministers are involved in things not so serious. Maybe like weddings and funerals. So I can get really nervous really quick. Well, that gene's just not in me. Praise the Lord, we have other elders, and they're kind of good at that. And they, they plan it. Some of them do it with excitement and tenacity and intentionality. And usually when we have events here at WCC, I hold that piece of paper with white knuckles, looking to one specific person, hoping that they can chill out. And trying to find out the cue so I can do my part and everything looks smooth. I want to share with you something that did not go oh so well. I used to teach at a Christian private school. Not the one that Amber's at, but one previously in our marriage. And I taught the middle school and high school students. I taught Bible. I taught history. I taught economics for like three weeks. Praise God that passed. And because I was with the high school students and I influenced them, they wanted me to be a part of the graduation ceremony. Now, I don't like big events, and it's really hard for me to know where to stand. And there was a practice run. But, beloved, it was like hurdling kittens. Because seniors are so excited and nervous and sensitive. And you're trying to tell them, this is what we do and where you go. And they're just busy on their phones and telling jokes and not talking to anyone ever again. To where what I was supposed to do was just briefly discussed. But my job was easy. I was to go up to a podium. I had a list of the students' names. And I was to read a student's name 
They come up on the stage, they shake hands, they hug someone. Something's put on the projector like baby pictures, inspiring quotes, people they want to say thanks to, and sharing where they're going to go next from here to receive that support for people to celebrate what they have accomplished. So the night happens, and I get on my platform, and I read student one, read student two, read student three, read student five, and six, and so on. And I'm ready for the next thing so I can get out of the spotlight. If I'm not here with a Bible talking, it just does not go well. Daniel does okay in groups with Bible, and that's kind of it. So there is this awkward silence, and I turn to the the principal or headmaster, and she starts mouthing something. I'm in whisper distance, mind you. (laughs) I do not mind if she even yells. I just want the awkwardness to go away. And the first thing to break the silence is the student's high heels as she stands up unannounced to shake hands and to grab her diploma. Yeah, I I felt that big. I apologize before a group, thankfully, who I can't see because it's dark. I say the student's name and she has everything up on the screen. Loved ones enjoy her life. And she sits down. So that night, people come to try and comfort me. Not helpful. (laughs) It's not the end of the world. I know that. You know what? She still graduated. Praise the Lord. That is very true. She still did graduate. But, But she will remember that night. All of her life. That night where she was supposed to be celebrated and embraced and noticed, she was forgotten. But it is true, she did graduate, regardless of my insufficiency. Imagine if you go to the temple with your offering, you're excited. You've counted everything. You've trained the children. The children are all excited to learn and experience it. You're carrying a burden and you don't feel reconciled to God yet. You're wanting to just simply show, I am going to be faithful and consistent in what the Lord has offered. You get there and the priest has no clue what to do. Imagine that feeling. Imagine that frustration, that horror. You don't know what to do with the offering of the Lord? Do you know the time and the finance and the preparation that went into this? If you mess this up, is God going to receive what I have given from my heart? I've I've acted out here in faith. I'm seeking to be obedient. I desire his mercy and his grace. Are you going to mess this up? So luckily, God wrote Leviticus 7 and 8 to instruct the priests on what they are to do. And a beautiful thing about chapter 7 and 8 is that all Israel gets to read this. It's not secret to them. There's not some hidden knowledge from the people that only the priests get to hold for themselves. Beloved, that, that's very unique to the, to the God of the Bible. 
He's not making separate different categories of those that know and then those that don't know. There are different responsibilities, different roles for sure. But everyone is being given knowledge, accessible knowledge on how they can worship God. I have a lengthy introduction here, so forgive me, we're not even going to verse 8 yet. We've gone through Leviticus thus far, understanding that this is the law, and do you realize we haven't dealt with like property yet? We haven't dealt with what to do if someone murders. We haven't dealt with infidelity. We haven't dealt with Sabbath breaking. The beginning of God's law instructs his people on how they are to worship him. Yahweh's brought them out of Egypt. He's going to be taking them to Canaan. He's establishing a nation. And the law he presents before them first and foremost is how they might have access to him. Now for us reading this as New Testament believers, I get the wrestling. It's hard for me. We're seeing lobes of the liver and fat and things being torn apart and where to even sprinkle blood. But Israel is reading, we can come before God. We can worship God even if we sin and we're guilty. We can come before God even if we sin and we're guilty and we're not sure of what we did. He's so gracious and merciful and we can come before him and be brought back into relationship. That's a different way of looking at law, isn't it? I think of law as something that's very cold. It's a matter of fact. And it tells you all the places of where you can get in trouble and how not to get in trouble. But this law is saying, this is how you come. This is me inviting you. This is me providing for you. I hope that's your experience with Christ's bride, the church. For, for, for you younger children, very, very young adults, you're going to be told that this environment is a place that has do's and don'ts. And really, it's more don'ts. I want you to see church as a place that shows you and assists you in living rightly before God and enjoying Him. Not how to keep, not how to keep some angry, thunderbolt being type God away from you. Church isn't a place where we learn how to escape God's anger. And people are going to be preaching that to you. They're going to be saying, church is a place where you go just to keep God off your back. But you can leave him all together. Church is a place where you find brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging one another and enjoying God. So verse 8, we have this repeated phrase, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This almost exact phrase is mentioned 29 times in Leviticus, by my count. Now, I'm not inspired. I might be wrong. There's also some deviations of, This is when the Lord spoke to Moses and to 
Aaron. And this is a section divider. So if you're having a hard time making sense of the order of this, I, in my Bible, I've highlighted that orange with a, with a little pencil. This lets us know that we are now going from the offerings and for the instructions of the people, and now the priests are to be educated. And what we see is that the burnt offering is being mentioned once again. In verse 9, we also see Aaron is to address Aaron and his sons, the priests. This is the first mention of this, where he is to speak to them directly. So remember, we have not had any narrative thus far. There's been no story to describe what Moses did or what Aaron did or how someone decided to do something or what they thought. This is still God directly speaking. And this is the instruction of them. They're to continually burn this offering. It's to be offered, this burnt offering, day and night. Now, when the people read this, they did not get that detail, but the priests are told it is continually stay on the altar and it is not to dwindle away, continually burning. Now, I think there's some theological significance to this because in this burnt offering, the priests are asking or seeking God's favor. It's not just simply serving as a nightlight. It's not simply there to, to allow beautiful aroma to, to cascade the environment. This is Israel showing that they are continually seeking after the Lord. And in this offering, I think there's an application for us as well. In fact, I, find, I found inspiration in our corporate reading in Psalms 1. So I'm going to read it again. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. So as the priest woke up in the morning... And took care of this fire. He was remembered, this day begins with me pursuing God's favor. We need to be intentional about this because our default is pursuing our own favor. And then when they were to go to sleep in preparations before they laid their head down, they were again to make sure that this offering was cared for. And then they were to approach sleep with this idea, this understanding and teaching, I am to seek the Lord's favor. What we also find in this first offering is there is a disposing of ashes, and this might seem really odd to us. We see that the ashes are to be gathered and handled in a certain way, and then they are to be taken outside the camp in an area that is clean. So usually outside the camp is where unmentionables could be thrown away and disposed of. I mean, there's no plumbing back in this day. There's, there's animals that you would butcher. Those would also go outside the camp. But these ashes are holy, for they have been on God's altar. So when they are disposed of, they are to be treated with properly. 
J. Uh, Schuyler, in his commentary, says, Such laws were crucial because these offerings were the Lord's holy property and had to be treated with due reverence. To do otherwise would be, disres- would be to disrespect the Lord himself. And what I love about this quote from Schuyler is, one, it's, it's, it's appropriate to do so. It's crucial because it's in the middle of an offering. But these items are also belonging to God. Everything in the tabernacle was built by God's instruction, by his design for a purpose. But then everything they brought, the flour, the birds, the cattle, does God not have possession of it? The individual who comes, he's not the sovereign over that person's life. The priestly line, did God not create that and provide it so that atonement may be found? Before your God, you own nothing. So if he asks this of you, we understand, well, it belongs to God. Some application for me is, I can't tell God, no, this is mine. This belongs to me. This you do not touch. I enjoy it too much. And then we have a really fun mention of some garments as well. I like talking about clothing in the Bible because I think we get it wrong quite a bit. Um, so w- there is a mention of there is a garment of which they are to wear fine linens. They're supposed to wear nice linens above and then also their undergarments. That's what we would call underwear. It was also to be particular. Now, there, there, there are two reasons for this. They're going to be going into the land of Canaan. And the Canaanites' worship is perverse. It's very sexual in nature. And some of them would worship unclothed. And some of the acts they would do, we're just not going to talk about at this pulpit. The priests were not to mimic that. They weren't to do whatever felt good for them or presume when they entered before God. Theologically also, this tabernacle and soon the temple to be built is built in a way to remind the people of Eden. If we spent time in Exodus, we could talk about how the different structural designs and I don't know all the words I feel panic Stephanie's right there but all the different ornaments and decorations um, remind us of the garden of paradise and the priests are not to walk in paradise naked they are walking on privileged ground They're going before a holy place. And they are coming there because of their sin. So they are to properly clothe themselves. In the New Testament, we also have instructions of how we are to conduct ourselves in the church. And I'll just briefly make some comments on that. Uh, In the church, we are to dress appropriate. We're to be modest. We're not to desire attention to ourselves. I grew up in San Diego the first eight years of my life, and my parents were used to ministers 
who would wear flip-flops and Hawaiian shirts. Then we moved to Georgia, and they thought they were attending a funeral. Uh, People would have suits on with ties, and then then my parents made, well, maybe not my parents, but I think it would be natural for them to assume, who do they think they are? And don't they, don't they know how humid it is in Georgia? Why would you wear the tie and the coat? There's something theological going on, what we find in Leviticus. They're approaching holy ground. You have your own culture in your house and how you are to dress. I ask this, that it would just be edifying to Christ. Um, I would love to, as an elder, every once in a while wear shorts, but that just pricks my conscience, so I don't. And I feel like maybe for some of you, that might be just a little too much. And you know what? I, I, I get that. So I, I got pants on. I'm going to continue coming with pants on. And if you wear shorts, glory to God in the highest, okay? We're seeking to be God-honoring in what we wear. Why don't we go ahead and go to verse 14. Now this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. Then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of fine flour of the grain offering and all the incense that is on the grain offering. And he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma as its memorial offering uh, to the Lord. What is left of it, Aaron and his sons are to eat. He shall be eaten as unleavened cakes and a holy place. They are to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their share from my portion by fire. It is most holy like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the sons of Aaron may eat it. It is a permanent ordinance throughout your generations from the offerings by fire to the Lord. Whoever touches them will be consecrated." So what we learn in this section that there is a, a handful of the grain that is to be presented at the altar. And the remainder is a portion for the priests. So remember, the priests, the Levites, they don't own land. They live off of the faithfulness of the other 11 tribes as they give their offering to the Lord. So they're to take a handful, present it before the Lord, and the rest they are to use. We also find in this section that the male offspring of Aaron, the priest's sons, are to receive this. And they are to receive this perpetually throughout their time as a priest. So it's the way in which the Lord makes sure the anointed priests are cared for. Not anyone can touch it. Ones that are holy, ones that are set apart. This shows how God is serious about providing for those who are committed to his ministry and his service. So church, I think there's a New Testament application here. There are several passages that remind the church to be faithful in its giving. One of the reasons is, is so that the pastor or the elder can live. So they can feed their family. So they can care for themselves. And it's very humbling and very blessing to be in that situation. So I've never seen Jeff adjust his belt, lean on the pulpit, and then just start peckering how no one gives enough money. 
my job. No, it's not my job. <clears throat> we sometimes think my, my, my sin or my choices or my thoughts just belong to me and they affect no one else. And then I look at this area and I think just another way that manifests itself out to be a lie. Not long ago, I was at uh, lunch with some individuals at a hospital, some of the nursing staff, and they were talking about the big lotto number that just happened. It was like, I don't know if it was billions, I think it was one of the largest. And they were talking about going in and they were going to buy their tickets to this, that, and the other. And I was quiet just because I find it really awkward. Uh, and then they realized, oh, the chaplain's here. He probably doesn't like lotto tickets. And then they start doing the thing that always happens. Well, if I did this, I would give this much to the church. <laughs> and, and then I would house eight orphans. And then I would donate thousands of dollars towards charity. I'm thinking, just seek to grow in, in grace and mercy now. I find myself constantly weak and, and poor in those things. Just give from grace and mercy. I didn't say it. Wanted to. I'm glad I didn't. But I'm before you all. Be obedient. Be giving. Be generous. Be faithful. All right. I would like to go on to 19 and 23. This is a little bit of a deviation, and I don't know how to outline this, but this is the priest's continual grain offering. So the people had a grain offering, but then the priests had their own, and this one is fascinating. So we find our phrase that Moses writes often, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering which Aaron and his sons are to present to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, the tenth of the ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be prepared with oil on a griddle. When it is well stirred, you shall bring it. You shall present the grain offering in baked pieces as a soothing aroma to the Lord. The anointed priest who will be in his place among his sons shall offer it. By a permanent ordinance, it shall be entirely offered up in smoke to the Lord. So every grain offering of the priests shall be burned entirely. It shall not be eaten. So this continual grain offering is a responsibility of the high priest. And I love getting to learn that. He had something he did every morning and every evening. This was the offering that was presented when the new line of priests were installed or inaugurated. And this is an offering that the priest made sure was presented before God. And this communicates something. Even if you are a high priest that has the privilege of entering the Holy of Holies, you're still a sinner. You still need God. You still need to respond in faithfulness, trust, and obedience. And that's beautiful. In other religions, you had kings, you had priests, shaman. 
And the responsibility of the people was to simply give, give, and give to them and make them happy because they had the ear of God. Whatever the divine said from above, they only spoke to them so you don't shake their cage and you don't upset them. But we, we find that this high priest is daily, twice a day, there is need for him to make this offering. And it is most holy. It is all given to God. It's not for consumption among the priests. I feel like I'm going fast, but let's go ahead and go to 24. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to, the, speak to Aaron and to his son saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is slain, is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. Anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated. And then any of its blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you shall wash what was splashed on. Also, the earthenware vessel in which it was spoiled shall be broken, and if it was spoiled in a, a boiled, sorry, and if it was boiled in a brazen vessel, then it shall be scourged and risen in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it; it is most holy. But no sin offering of which any of the blood is brought to the altar of the tent to make atonement. In the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. So this is the sin or the purification offering here. And it's mentioned that it is most holy. It is being burnt on the north side of the altar. It is closer to the tent. We find in this there are some exceptions here. If this is being offered for an individual... Well, this meat can be consumed. But if this offering is being made because of a high priest, or because the congregation, the nation has sinned, then this offering is brought in closer to the tent and it is to be fully consumed. So it shows a level of offense here. Some sins, just by a lay person, it can be enjoyed by the priests. But a priest cannot benefit off of his sin. So a priest can't wake up and say, you know what, I have sinned this way against the Lord or I have led the entire assembly in sin. We're going to slay this animal and then I'm going to enjoy a steak. That's not how it's to happen. We find some really interesting um, content here. When their garments are dirtied with blood, they are to be washed. That blood belongs to the Lord. The life is in it, it's to be offered to him. And to take that holy blood outside of the tent of meeting would be inappropriate and wrong. Also, sometimes you would use a bowl to collect the blood for sprinkling. Well, if it's bronze, it could be rinsed off and boiled very easily and rinsed. But if it's earthenware, it's porous, then it absorbs inside the bowl. Now, I know this sounds really boring, okay? Or it makes no sense to you. Why are we talking about bowls that might be porous and have blood? Well, I, I think that we read previously, these things belong to the Lord. 
And we're privileged that he asks us to engage him. And if Israel is supposed to be mindful of the blood and to treat it as sacred as holy, then they are to follow through with this. So this passage ends with a reminder of the blood rites of the purification offering which took place in the tent of meeting. So I think this shows again the priests are called to faithfulness and honoring the Lord's name and to properly treat his offerings. Pulling back a little bit from this passage and coming now into our, our day and age. Doesn't it feel like we're really relaxed here? And I don't mean that in a negative way. Doesn't it feel, don't you feel kind of relaxed? I, I make sure that I feel as relaxed as possible within moderation when I come to church. I've had my coffee. I have my shoes that are more comfortable. These aren't my shiny ones. Uh, we make sure that we have things that kids can scribble on. We have really amazing chairs that are comfortable, in my opinion, that we sit with. We're not worrying about a bunch of dongs and where to stand and when to sit. We're liturgical, but I don't think we're very overwhelming with that. But the New Testament does provide for us some structure. So I don't think we're fully removed from this idea of being intentional uh, in our worship. When the early church began and the Spirit moved among new believers and the gifts were in action... I remember Paul writing in 1 Corinthians, hey, if you have people that have a word of prophecy, if you have people that have a word of wisdom, if you have people speaking tongues, listen, we got to add some structure to this. There's complete chaos here. We need to make sure that we are not adding confusion. So he writes, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So they are to have an order and a structure. Something else. I don't think it's you. I I don't even know who it is. I don't care. Another thing I want us to think about is our high priest here. They are given these particular instructions on how they are to go about their business. What they are to eat. What they are to burn what they are to wash, what they are to crush, how often they are to do these things. I'll be ending soon. (laughs) This is an easy application. Christ accomplished all this. Christ, the son of Joseph, the son of God, lived on this earth as a perfect high priest, being obedient to the law without sin and accomplishing that which we could not seek to do. We are not in the Levite line. We are not priests. But praise be to God, we have a Lord who was our high priest and who was our great sacrifice. Let's bow in prayer. True and living God, I thank you so much for this book. Father, I pray that as we continue in the book of Leviticus, Christ would be made great. I thank you that he is our high priest. 
And I thank you that, Father, his work has been accomplished and that it has been pleasing in your sight. And for this, we can now come before you. We ask this and say this in Christ's name. Amen.